Oh, if we keep them here a little longer, it'll be that much shorter. <laughs> and in between Sunday school and church, you know, the, we had the issue with the bathrooms. And I had more than one person come up to me and say, the bathrooms don't work, so keep it short. <laughs> well, let me give you this word of encouragement. The text is only 31 verses. It's all going to be okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do rejoice at the fact that we can get together and we can read your word and talk about it. And, and we are very aware that the, the one who is about to read your word and proclaim it is very imperfect. And, and the ones who are about to hear it are imperfect, but your word is perfect. And we pray that you would give ears to hear your truth and your truth alone, and everything else would be forgotten. Amen. It is, it, it's a good thing to recognize our graduates. That's, a, that's an exciting time of life. There are so many questions, so many possibilities. What will I do now? Where will I go? What do I believe? What do I really believe? Not what do my parents believe. What do I really believe? And on, a, on the flip side of that, what do I reject? What do I know? That is not true. I'm not buying that. There are lots of important questions, and one of the marks of adulthood is that you begin to come up with your own answers, independent of mom and dad. This is where I am on this. This is what I believe. And as I started to think about the graduates and this season of life, I, I started to think about our church. What does this congregation believe? What does it really believe? To what do we hold fast? And what do we completely reject? What will Logansville Community Church believe in in the year, say, 2050 or 2100? One of the things that's kind of funny as I was thinking about this, if God should allow this congregation to continue to the year 2100, there are people in this room who might be in the congregation of this church in 2100. It's not going to be me, but there are some people here who could be. Pastor won't be the pastor of the church in the year 2100. So I thought a lot this week about the life of a local church. There are churches that shrink. And there are churches that grow in number. There are churches that grow in faithfulness. And there are churches that just sort of coast along with the culture. And the Bible gives many cautionary tales about churches that didn't exactly blossom over the years. The church in Ephesus abandoned the love they had at first. 
The church in Sardis had a reputation of being alive, but it was dead. And there were just a few who remained faithful. The church in Laodicea became spiritually lukewarm. They were wretched, poor, blind, and naked. And these are haunting warnings to us. What are we to do to avoid these things? Well, fortunately, we've been given a manual. Turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Deuteronomy chapter 4. And just to give us a little context, because we're jumping in here in the middle of the book, we find God's people about to start a new chapter in their history. Israel, we should recognize, was a nation not simply chosen by God, but it was created by God. It was formed and provided for and protected by God. There was a time when it did not exist, and then God made a nation from one man. It was not different from every other nation because of all the clean living those Israelites did. It was unique and it was special and it was different from every other nation because through that nation all the other nations would be blessed by God. And at this point in their history, Israel has been miraculously freed from Egyptian slavery. Israel's been fed by God in the wilderness. Israel has heard the voice of God already. They've sinned against God and they have paid the price for that. And now they're about to cross the Jordan and take the land. And Moses, this man who has stood between the people and their God, who has been an intercessor for the nation of Israel, isn't going across the river into the land with them. So our text today is a manual of sorts for God's people before they enter the promised land. The promised land is filled with seduction and idolatry. It's filled with people who hate the one true God and will gladly poison God's people with that same hatred. They will gladly dull the hearts of God's people. So to you, I say you're in a few minutes here going to walk through those doors and you're going to go out into the world and the world is filled with seduction and idolatry and it's filled with people who hate the one true God and who will enthusiastically, gladly poison your hearts against him and dull your hearts toward him. So let's read this because we need this just as desperately as Israel needed this. Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting right in verse 1. This is what it says to us. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen that the Lord your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor but you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today see i have taught you statutes and rules 
as the Lord God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to, me, learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth." and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded to you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tables of stone, and the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land and that you are going over to possess. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully. Since you saw no form on that day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure like the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land, I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you father children and children's children, and you have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you were going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed." And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. 
And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Now, there's a lot of good stuff in there, and we could spend a whole lot of Sundays on these 31 verses, but we've only got one. So I want to for, uh, focus on four main things. Number one, we are to hold fast to what God commands in his word. We are to hold fast to what God commands in his word. Number two, we are to diligently guard our soul and teach our children. We are to diligently guard our soul and teach our children. Number three, we are to remember that God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. We are to remember that God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And then lastly, number four, we are to remember that God is a merciful God. God is a merciful God. We are to hold fast to what God commands in his word. Look at verse 1 and 2. It says, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Verse 2. And you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Listen and do that you may live. There's a clear implication here. If you do not listen, if you do not obey, you may not live. So listen. Listen to what? Listen to the commands. What are the commands? How are we to know what God commands us? Well, fortunately for us, they're written in God's word. There are many ways to not listen. It is incredibly tempting to not listen and not obey. That comes very natural to us. And it happens all the time. And the way I want us to be warned against, a way that's very popular to not listen and not obey, sounds something like this. Well, that verse can't mean what it says. Actually, I just know in my heart that what that verse really means is, now, I know what you're thinking. Nobody's going to say, well, that verse doesn't mean what it says out loud, right? And that's probably true. But let me give you a couple of examples of, of ways that this happens. For example, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. It says in part, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Now, what some people will do with that, and if we are not careful, eventually, we could do with that, is we will read that and we will say, well, you see, what dead means right there is mostly dead. 
you're not all the way dead. You're most, you're really, really sick. You're mostly dead. And according to Miracle Max, that great theologian, mostly dead means partially alive. So when we read and you were dead, what that really means is that you were alive. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Well, I mean, I agree people need Jesus, but to say that the Muslims and the Buddhists and the Hindus and all the others are not worshiping the same God in their own special way, to say that they're going to go to hell when they die if they are not in Christ. Well, that just sounds mean. Matthew 5, verses 44 and 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Well, I love my enemies. Of course I love those liberals. Of course I love those conservatives. I mean, I wouldn't have those people over to my house with my children. But I love them. I love them over there. One of the reasons we believe here that it is so important to preach through entire books of the Bible and to do that verse by verse is that eventually, if you do that, you're going to run across, you're going to read, you're going to run across, somebody's going to stand up here and preach something you don't like. You will be faced with a Jesus who doesn't look very much like you. You will hear Jesus say some stuff that you would never say. And this is a good, healthy thing. I believe they call those moments opportunity for growth. Because one of two things will happen when you're faced with this. There's a fork in the road when we run into a Jesus who doesn't look or sound very much like us. One fork in the road, one way we could respond is to note, I'm not very much like this Jesus I'm reading about here, so I better change. And in that moment, you may have just started the process known as sanctification. What in the world is sanctification? Sanctification is the progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and more like Christ in our actual lives. And that's the fork in the road we should take. But there's another fork in the road. The other possible reaction is this. I read something, I heard something preached, and this Jesus sure doesn't sound like me. And so the other thing we could do is we could say, well, the Jesus I know would never say that. And in that case, if that's the fork in the road we're going to take, then you've probably revealed yourself to be an idolater. And maybe, just maybe, you need to get saved and quit wasting time at playing church.
If you aren't sure what stuff in the Bible Jesus would say to us, fortunately, there's a color code system. And I'm going to give it to you now. It's going to make your life a lot easier. So these are the things that Jesus would say to us. All of the letters in red and all the letters in black. These are the things that Jesus has to say to us. This is how he chooses to reveal to us who he is. It's all from Jesus. Even the Old Testament is from Jesus to us. We need to understand something about this person, Jesus. He was still God and still fully aware of what he was doing when he rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a Jesus thing. And that's the same Jesus who says to the woman caught in adultery, the very act of adultery, where are your accusers, woman? I'm not going to accuse you either. Now, this is an incredibly unpopular idea on the other side of those doors. In his USA Today article, a man named Oliver Thomas just blasts the idea that the Bible is inerrant. In other words, it is without error. And in that article, he urges all you backwards Christians who may be good people, but you really need to get on the right side of history. And you need to acknowledge that human reason trumps Moses and Paul. Oh, Paul. And, oh, by the way, Jesus. This is what he argues. This is Oliver Thomas. He says this. Here's the corner we have painted ourselves into. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. Yet the Hebrew and Christian scriptures did not float down from heaven perfect and without error. They were written by men, and those men made mistakes. Now, if you're a fan of the briefing, if you're a fan of Dr. Moeller, you hear something like that and you think, oh, this is exactly the sort of thing that he's going to dig into and do some work on, and you would be right. That's exactly what he did. This is how he responded to Mr. Thomas. He said this, Moreover, Thomas dismisses a fantastical view of inspiration that in no way accords with the Bible's internal witness. He depicted Christian belief in the inspiration of the scriptures as the sacred writings floating down from heaven. Of course, Christians do not believe the Bible simply descended from the heavens. The Apostle Peter told us that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's 2 Peter 2.1. Furthermore, the Apostle Paul wrote that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. He goes on. He says, this is the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. The Bible did not spiral out of the heavens, but came as God's unfolding revelation through the ages. The Holy Spirit guided human authors to write his holy, infallible, inerrant, and inspired word. 
Thomas rightly stated that the scriptures were indeed written by men. He fails to recognize, however, that God protected the authors of scripture from error. And then Dr. Moeller really cuts to the heart of the issue. Listen to this. He says, the impetus of Thomas's charge is moral. The Bible does not correspond to his moral and ethical worldview, which celebrates the entire array of the LGBTQ spectrum. The sexual revolution has no compatibility with the Bible, so the scriptures must be tossed out as erroneous artifacts of a bygone age. So that's his motivation. That's the issue that that prompted Mr. Thomas to write this. I'm not camping out on that issue. I'm camping out on the inerrancy and sufficiency and authority of Scripture. But those two things are in direct conflict with one another. So I want you to catch what Dr. Moeller said. This is a moral argument Mr. Thomas is making. If you really believe that this book is without error... It's because you're a bad person. He is moral, and some of the stuff in this book isn't. So if this congregation is to remain faithful in the year 2050 or 2100, after some of us are long gone, you're going to have to deal with this. The world's not going to let you get away from this. You're going to have to hold fast to the Word of God. You're going to have to abandon the idea that the Word of God is a buffet. I'll take some of this. Ooh, I like this. I don't want any of that. That's not who we are called to be. We are to hold fast to what God commands in His Word. And we are to diligently guard our soul and teach our children. Look at verse 9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so." If we are to remain a faithful congregation in the generations to come, we must keep our souls diligently, lest we forget. We must be a people who understand our hearts. What does the Bible say about the heart? Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is why... Well, I know what that says there, but I just know in my heart, that's dangerous. That's dangerous. We must be a people who understand that man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. Verse 11. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice, 
And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules, that you might do them in the land that you were going over to possess. Now this is important in verse 12. They heard the sound of words, but saw no form. This is where we could have a problem. This is where Israel had a problem. This is where we could have a problem. Verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure. And then he goes on this big, long list. Male and female and birds and fish and all this, all this list, all the sorts of things that people on the other side of Jordan do. And Israel has already had a problem with this sort of thing. That stuff has worked on them already. Look at verse 3. Go back up to 3. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal Peor. So, depending on where you went to church, as you travel further south, that may be pronounced Baal. So whether you pronounce it Baal or Baal, I've heard it pronounced both ways, you won't bother him because he doesn't exist, so he doesn't know how you pronounce his name. But verse 3 here sounds bad. What happened there? Well, back in Numbers, in chapter 25, things did not go well at all for Israel. This is what it says. Listen to this. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited... These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them. That could also be impale them. Hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel." And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And if you go on, you're going to read that Aaron's son Phinehas was pretty passionate, pretty zealous about this in a very non-Disney section of Scripture. But then after that it says, This assuaged the anger of the Lord. And if you keep reading, you'll also see that 24,000 people died because of this. Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. I like the way that, uh, that Vodi Bakum describes this commandment. He says, this is God's way of saying, don't even make anything that looks like me. We are swept up oftentimes in this idea of an artist's rendering of Jesus. 
And we're swept up in the same way. We get fascinated by the idea of, let me tell you something, I went to heaven and I checked it out and now I'm back, so this is what it's like. Both of those things are a displacement of Scripture. God said, you all don't need to see my face. You've heard my voice. The Bible tells us all we need to know about heaven. Because God's word is sufficient. So Israel is being warned against that fleshly desire to set aside scripture for something more enticing. And it is enticing, isn't it? What did you see there? The warning for us is the same. The Bible may tell us that, but what does sociology say? What does psychology say? What about human reason? Now, sociology and psychology and human reason, they're fine. That's okay. They're not necessarily bad things. But they are to be subject to and judged by Scripture and never the other way around. We can think of idolatry as following into two categories. The first category would be crass idolatry. That would be carved or painted or man-made images that supposedly present us with a picture of God. And we hear that and we probably scoff at that. You know, somebody's got the little chess piece and that's supposed to be God up on the shelf. And are you kidding me? Well, it was no joke in Israel's day. But what about the second form? That would be refined idolatry. And this is how Ligonier defines refined idolatry. Listen to this. It says, idolatry of the refined sort includes the pursuit of anything other than the glory of God as one central purpose for being. But refined idolatry also occurs in a more subtle manner. Listen to this. Anytime we deny an attribute of the Lord revealed in Scripture or allow our own preferences to determine his character, we are guilty of refined idolatry. I sort of doubt that the future generations of Logansville are going to be bowing down in the living room before the chess piece up on the shelf. But this is the one we should be very concerned about. If one of them is going to get us, it will be this one. If we read the word of God... And our response is, well, my God would never do that. You may be more truthful than you realize. Because you have an idolatry problem. So pressing into the scriptures and avoiding refined idolatry go hand in hand. Unhitching yourself to the Old Testament will eventually inevitably lead to unhitching yourself to the New Testament. Because it's the same unchanging God in both halves of the book. Malachi 3.6 For I, the Lord, do not change. A perfect God, you understand this? A perfect God isn't a changing or evolving God. If he was changing or evolving, he had to be more or less perfect on one end of that deal. 
He is perfect, and so he is unchanging. We are to hold fast to what God commands in his word. We are to diligently guard our soul and teach our children. We are to remember that God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Look at verse 23. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. This isn't the only place we hear this about God. In Isaiah chapter 30, in verses 27 and 30, it says this, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger, and in thick rising smoke, his lips are full of fury, and his tongue is like a devouring fire. And then in verse 30, it says, And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard, and the descending blow of his arm to be seen, in furious anger, and a flame of devouring fire, with a cloudburst and storm and hailstones. How is God a consuming fire? What is he really talking about? This is getting to the issue, to the fact that God is holy and we are not. And what is unholy will be burned up in the presence of what is holy. This is why the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The God of the Bible is a jealous God. That means that God continually seeks to protect his own honor. God will not step aside and share worship. God will be glorified. God will get the maximum amount of glory for himself. And this is a hard truth I'm about to give you here. But in some cases, God will be glorified in the demonstration of his justice and terrible wrath poured out on those who reject him. He will be glorified in that. God intensely hates all sin. And because God is perfectly just, every sin ever committed will be met with the ferocious wrath of God. There's no such thing as one that got through the cracks or one that got let slide. Psalm 75, 8. For the hand of the Lord, for in the hand of the Lord, there's a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Revelation 14, 9 through 11. And, an, and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. You don't have to look around long to find places that just don't want to have anything to do with this. They just pretend that this part of the book isn't there. This isn't their God. But ignoring it won't make it go away. 
Every parent of a three-year-old knows. Even if he closes his eyes, you still exist. He can't see you, but you're still there. You can still see him. So we are to hold fast to what God commands in his word. We are to diligently guard our soul and teach our children. We are to remember that God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. That's in the manual too. Verse 25. When you father children and children's children and you have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but you will be utterly destroyed, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, And you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. So if we fall away from these things, if we hold scripture up against the so-called wisdom of man as opposed to the other way around, if we give ourselves over to the idolatry of a God made in our own image, we may just be scattered and destroyed. Left few in number, just a a remnant of who sits here today. Now, if I've completely bumped you out on graduation Sunday, I want you to take heart because there's more to the text. Verse 29. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to to him. We are to remember that God is a merciful God. God's mercy is God's goodness toward those who are suffering. And not only is he merciful, but he is gracious. His grace means God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. Praise the Lord for his grace, because I need a whole bunch of that. And so do you. Now, it would be far better if we were not destroyed and scattered and in tribulation. I don't want any of that for us. But even if we are, one day God will preserve a remnant. His sheep will follow him. They will hear his voice. So now that I've bummed you all out, you're... Here's some good news for graduation Sunday. Zechariah chapter 10, verses 6 through 9. Listen to this. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. 
Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in. For I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before, though I scattered them among the nations. Yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. That is good news. God has compassion for us. God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And he is just, and there is no such thing as a sin that will go unpunished. God's wrath foams in his cup, and all who remain condemned will drink down its dregs and stagger and die. And that is exactly what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross. The sins of his people were placed upon the Lamb of God, and he was crushed and killed under the full weight of his Father's wrath. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Nobody wants to unhitch from that. Hebrews 10, 11 to 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. If you are being sanctified, you have been perfected through Jesus. For those in Christ, the cup is empty. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So it is the fervent prayer of the elders of this church that this congregation would hold fast to these things. So whether you are about to graduate or just graduated or whether your feet don't quite touch the floor or whether you graduated a long time ago, hold fast to what God commands in his word. Diligently guard your soul and teach your children Remember that God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And remember that God is a God of mercy. And now, O Logansville, listen to the statutes that I am teaching you and do them that you may live. Let's pray. O God, we know that you are in the heavens and you do all that you please. What is man that you regard him? Man is like a breath, his days a passing shadow. Your word is without error. It is the standard of truth. 
It is sufficient for all we need to believe and live and worship. Help us to guard our souls. We are strangers in a strange land that relentlessly pursues its own idols. Keep our hearts from being poisoned. Don't let us forget that you are, a, that you are jealous for your own glory. You are a consuming fire. Don't let us forget that you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You are God of mercy. Make us a people whose faithfulness lasts from generation to generation. It's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.